This recording was made on Gornu country, smack bang in the middle of modern day Adelaide. It's the only way that you can describe what a person is, describe what they do. There doesn't seem to be much job satisfaction or pleasure in this picture. Guys, this is how lucky I actually am, is that I got to, aside from getting to talk to someone way, 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 way smarter than me about a topic that I'm really interested in, I got to talk to one of the world-renowned experts on something I'm really interested in, sharks, and more specifically, shark attacks that seem to have been on the rise in Australia this year, as if 2020 wasn't crazy enough. Dr. Charlie Huvniers is a professor at Flinders University who specializes in sharks and whose current interest is in great white sharks. And with such a rabid appetite for more information about great white sharks off the back of consecutive tragedies on the east coast of Australia, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that sharks have been on my mind when I've been sat out in the surf even more than they usually do. And it's one of those horrible things as a surfer or a diver where it's almost like when you start thinking about it, you may as well just go in because it can consume your thoughts so quickly and ruin what's otherwise supposed to be a pleasurable and enjoyable activity. So anyway, picking the brains of this guy was such a treat for me. We sat down in his office in Flinders Uni and I just got to ask questions to my heart's content for the better part of an hour. And I just felt so privileged to be able to verify some really sensational theories that I've stumbled across on the internet. And there's so much conjecture going around about why these attacks are happening. Do sharks hate humans? That's a stupid question, but it was a real one of mine during this interview. Um, I'm not embarrassed about that. I know nothing about sharks except for what my heart tells me, which is not scientific. I'm guilty of anthropomorphizing these creatures just like everybody else and assuming that because conceivably they are our enemy that we must be their enemy, which is just simply not true. And so I actually got the greatest gift of all from this conversation, which was walking away feeling less afraid of sharks somehow after just immersing myself in the topic with someone so knowledgeable about it. But Dr. Charlie really made me feel better about the fact that there is no shark-human vitriol, aside from the humans that want to cull the sharks. Shark encounters tend to be far more exploratory than they are aggravated attacks. And it's a case of mistaken identity more often than not, it would seem. But also, we just know so little about it. Even the smartest guys in the field know so little about them and are working really hard to try and establish what's going on with these magnificent fish. So anyway, I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And hopefully it might clear up for you as it did for me, some more objective truths and, and you might be able to achieve a more factual perspective on the situation at large rather than letting your heart dictate the behavior of your brain as I am all too guilty of doing. So anyway, that's enough from me. Please enjoy Dr. Charlie Huvniers. Well, I'm still most interested in everything, okay. in, in the shark species, because yeah, uh, yeah. I, I really don't have a favorite. And, and I often get asked, what's your favorite species? And I, I might say Wobbegong, because that's what I started on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of people would expect white sharks. And yes, at the moment, I do work a lot on white sharks, but not specifically because I'm most interested in them. It's more that these are the important questions, there are important questions about white sharks at the moment mm. and also uh, here in South Australia. 
my main two areas of research currently is mostly um, in relation to wildlife tourism and also shark bite mitigation measures. Yes. And that's obviously because here in South Australia, we've got the, the wild shark cage diving industry. Yeah. And we want to make sure that this is being done sustainably with, with minimal uh, effects on sharks. So like no charming and no sort of um, intentional aggravation of them, do you mean? Yeah, kind of. It is very complex and there's much more to cage diving than, than people think. Yeah. Um, and in, in the case of cage diving, the, the main thing that people might not realize is that these sharks are not being fed um, by the cage diving operators. If you look at YouTube or social media, a lot of times the main thing you're going to see is the sharks taking a bait. Yeah. And whilst that can happen, there are some strict regulations to minimize how much this does happen. And I guess the research that we're doing is trying to help m putting in place the best management regulations to minimize the effect on the sharks. And mm. Currently, uh, in South Australia, with the cage diving industry, that relates to uh, a, a maximum number of operators out there, uh, a maximum number of days they can be um, at the Neptunes, so they can't be there every single day, but also a maximum amount of how much burly and bait is being used, mm -hmm. um, and also a bit of a penalty so that when the sharks does manage to get a bait, which doesn't happen as often as people think, because the operators are actually quite good at moving the bait before the sharks takes it, they get a penalty where they, they cannot bait or burly for 15 minutes. So that provides an incentive, uh, an, an additional incentive for the operators to do the right thing and not let the sharks take that bait. Okay. So people think these sharks are being fed, that, that's not actually the case. Yes, they do get the bait every now and then, okay. but not as much as people think. and, and probably not as much to have a, a huge influence on, on the shark behavior. But at the same time, we want to make sure that, you know, what we think is happening is correct and that it's not having an influence on sharks. So we are monitoring the residency of the sharks using um, acoustic telemetry. So these kind of tags, I've got one in my Is that an actual tag? Yeah, oh, I, I was sick. just actually prepping some of them for, um, wow. for, for a, a trip soon. So we put these on the sharks and with receivers at that uh, cage diving site, we can keep an eye on how much time the sharks are spending at the Neptunes so that we can manage the industry according to whatever changes might be occurring. As, as in like if they're being um, kind of uh, influenced to come back or their learning behaviors, do you mean? Yeah, we, not so much learned behavior. These tags are more for residency. So we, we're looking at are they staying at the Neptunes more so than you would expect them to do naturally. Oh, okay. So we've got yeah. some data from, from before when there wasn't so much cage diving and the sharks were at the Neptune you know, a certain number of days, maybe like a couple of weeks. At one point when the industry started going there more and more, that residency increased. And that's when we put all this, well, not us, but the, the government put all this regulation in yeah. place to try to curve that residency back down to what it was like before. But there's no point doing that if you're not going to check whether these regulations are working or not. Yeah. And that's why we, there's been a, a monitoring program that's been happening since these regulations have been put in place that keeps a tap on what that residency is. And what we've seen is that since the, the regulation, the residency has gone back down to what it used to oh, be. Oh, fantastic. So this is like a really direct result of, yeah. or almost like avoidance of something that could be otherwise really bad. It's basically a minim minimization of the effect that was observed. We've yeah. been able to 
to regulate the industry to reduce whatever effect was occurring mm -hmm. to bring it back down to what we think now is natural behavior. Okay. That's such mm -hmm. an interesting thing to learn because I'm, I've become absolutely tragic at being on um, ocean forums, like mm -hmm. surf forums and diving forums and stuff, yeah. reading the amount of conjecture in these comment threads. And that's one thing that keeps coming up from presumably armchair scientists like yeah. me who are like, you know what's happening is the sharks are learning that with humans comes food and then blah, blah, blah. And so the assumption is that cage diving would sort of teach these sharks to yeah. associate humans with food. Yeah. So that's so completely unfounded. There's, there's a lot to that. Um, a lot of that comes from the misconception that the cage divers are feeding the sharks. Mm -hmm. And as I said, that's not occurring as much as people think. Um, to be honest, there, there hasn't been any specific studies looking at the link between cage diving and shark bites, but that's because from a scientific um, perspective, it would be very hard to do because you just don't, in a way it sounds bad, but you don't have enough shark bites to be able to look at it scientifically. Yeah. It's not occurring enough to be able to really understand the potential causation between the two. Yeah, gotcha. You can look at learning theories or learning behavior of sharks, and there is no doubt that sharks can learn and will learn and can make associations, but in very specific conditions or situations. And whilst it, it, it'd be very hard to test out the Neptunes, um, the, the, the learning, if you look at the theory behind learning and, and associative behavior, there needs to be a reward for the shark to make that association between, let's say, food and humans. Mm. That reward, as I said, they're not getting that bait sufficiently to be rewarded enough to make that link. Yeah, okay. On top of that, these sharks, they're not permanent residents at the Neptunes. They move a lot. They, they, we call them temporary residents, which means that they're, they're probably spending only maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month, um, before moving to other places when they're not exposed to the cage diving industry. Yeah. So that's less than a tenth of their time spent with the industry with the rest of the time, 90% of the time, spent somewhere else. Yeah. So again, it, they're not being exposed to that very small reward, which is very tiny anyway, yeah, yeah. to really be able to learn that much and to maintain that learning throughout the rest of the time, if that learning was happening, and also to, to apply that learning that, as I say, I still don't believe that they, they got it, but even if they did, to apply that to different locations in different situations as well. Yeah. So there's a, so I mean, there's a lot it's to that whole learning aspect. And yeah. the, the key things is that for learning or association to happen, there has to be a, a frequent, regular reward, um, and then which they're not getting. And even when they are, the Neptune is only for a short period of time. Yeah. And it doesn't work in the opposite direction in that they're getting upset and then they're becoming angry at humans? I, no, I, I know that's a stupid question, well, but it's a real one. It's, it's, it's interesting and I know some people think that, but I mean, the other, I guess, things to consider when you're thinking about association, let's say that the sharks were rewarded enough to make an association, they would make the association with um, basically, let's say, food and maybe large boats in that specific area. We don't know that shark would be able to generalize that association to much smaller boat that would be different. And again, we don't even know that Chaga would be able to realize what a human is. They're not mm. actually seeing humans, they're seeing big boats, they're seeing cages. They, you know, for a shark's perspective, a 
boat in a cage is very different to a couple of divers mm. at Byron Bay, for example. Yeah. So again, even if there was some learning going on, it wouldn't be with divers. It would be with the situation of big boats with cages. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, we, you know, we don't know, but a cage with people inside is very different to a person. And yeah. we don't know that the sharks are able to understand that what's inside the cage is there swimming somewhere the else thing. in a different state right. somewhere else as well. Yeah, gotcha. So there, there is that aspect as well. And in terms of, so that's in terms of that association, in terms of getting angry at, at, at people, again, for sharks to be I know, people, I know they'd have to realize there's actually people in the cage, which they might not realize. Yeah, yeah, the other yeah. thing is we actually, we're thinking, but we don't have data for that yet, but we're currently working on, on trying to collect data to test this, is that the opposite is actually happening. And that instead of, um, of conditioning or learning or association, we're seeing what we call habituation, where habituation is uh, when uh, an organism, an animal, it becomes habituated to a stimulus to the point that it will no longer respond to that stimulus. And that's what we think might be happening at the Neptunes, where there's obviously stimulus in the water, you've got the bit of chum burly, you've got the bait, but because they're not getting that reward, they, know they, they, they respond to the burly and the bait becomes less and less through time. Okay. So when the first arrive at the Neptunes, they might come up to the boat and be attracted to the burly and try to get the bait. But because there's not that reward as you know, when they come in, the next through time after a couple of weeks at the Neptunes, they might still detect the burly or the bait, but they're less likely to be coming towards the boats because they know they can't get a reward for it. Yeah, so when, where's that line then between habituation and conditioning? Like, is that a generational thing? It's, it's purely based on a lot of it, not entirely, but a lot of it is based on that reward. And obviously, if they're being rewarded from coming close to the boat, then they might, they're likely to, to be conditioned to do so. Yeah. Um, if they come to close to the boat and there's no reward, well, why would they keep coming closing to the close to the boats. There's no long, longer any reason to respond to that burly because they know that it's not a whale being there. It's not a tuna being there. Yeah. It's basically some, a, some, some, a boat uh, in that area. So they, and we, we, we've got some small anecdotal, but maybe probably not enough to, for clear cut, but through, um, through observation from the cage diving industry, they are noticing that the individual sharks that they can recognize through um, you know, identification marks, etc. It looks like when they first arrive, they're more interested, and and after a few weeks, they become less and less likely to come to the boat. Wow, so it's that quickly? It's just potentially yes, yeah. and, and that's why we, we don't know if it's a, a perception from the cage diving industry or if it's real. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where our jobs as scientists is to actually test, figure that out, and collect thing. and collect data yeah. to see if it's actually happening. Are are the, the sharks becoming less and less interested in the boat through time? If that is correct, and if we can prove that scientifically, it would, it would be a, 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 some good evidence to show that conditioning is certainly not happening, but we might actually be seeing the opposite, where the sharks become less and less interested in the boats. Yeah, that, okay. So that must be um, quite exciting for you as a shark expert then to like break down the myth that human beings are sharks' enemies just because sharks are human beings' enemies? Because yeah. I feel like that's the basis of a lot of 
there's a lot of emotional yeah yeah there's a lot of conflict out there uh, and, and differences in opinions as well um, as much as you know it's I found out a really interesting study and I think the outcome of, of such study would be of big interest to a large number of people mm. I don't want to let my interest biases in terms of I would like the findings to be this or to be that um, we know we've got an interesting question in terms of is there that habituation taking place um, I don't want to be influenced by what I'd like the results to be yeah, I'll, okay. let, I'll let the data drive this is why I've got a scientist man because I need to invest yeah, in the results it, it is tempting and you know obviously I, I, I try, I'd like to avoid and try to help towards reducing conflict between humans and sharks yeah. um, so yeah, I think this study is really important to be able to provide that information regardless of whichever way it goes yeah yeah. because at, this, at the same time if if what we think is wrong and, and there is some conditioning taking place, uh, which again, from a theoretical perspective is unlikely, but you know, th weird things can happen. Mm. Um, if there is a, a potential issue there, we need to see whether that can be managed and, and avoided as well. So regardless, regardless of, the, of the outcome, I think it'd be important whether we show habituation or whether there is actually conditioning that we didn't realize. Yeah, yeah. And so, as far as mitigation strategies go, mm -hmm. are you um, are you confident in the products at the moment that people are flogging like sh like shark bands and shark shield and all that? So um, we've had the opportunity to do to test a lot of these different products. Yeah. Um, and the the background for this is, as you said, there's a lot of products devices out there, and with the the I guess the increase in the number of shark bites overall, there's been more and more products that's been put out on the market you know very quickly yeah there's oftentimes a lot of claims made around these products and unfortunately more often than not none of them have been substantiated with any independent or, or scientific testing including yours like the stuff the test that you've done you've noticed they haven't worked well that, that's why we did uh, our testing is to try to tease out which one do work and which one don't so that people can make informed decisions mm. in terms of these uh, devices and we've tested quite a few now and out of those that we tested including some use, trying to use olfaction some using uh, magnetic fields and some using electric fields we found that the electric fields are the most likely to reduce shark bites okay all we found is that the magnet ones <coughs> without naming any brands um, don't, really don't do as much we actually couldn't detect a significant difference when these magnets were being used but with the electric deterrence we were able to record a 60% reduction wow. in the number of shark bites so again I think it's important for people to realize that it's not a hundred percent protection yeah um, it, it only reduced it by 60% but that's still a 60% reduction so there are devices out there that can reduce the, the chance of being bitten, mm. but it's not going to be foolproof stopping it every time. Yeah. And even in those 60% of time when the, the, the shark didn't take the bait in a test, the shark was still able to come very, very close. And that's because the range of these electric fields uh, is not as big as some people might think. Yeah. It is quite small, but even though it is small, it still stopped sharks. We tested on white sharks, white sharks in 60% of the time. Wow. And even in cases when the shark was coming at speed, charging, charging or in, in a, what we call a predatory mode. And that's the one thing that people say, well, it might stop sharks sometimes, but not when it's, it's, it's really Locked on. focused on something. And yeah. that's not true. And 
what we found is that it doesn't work all the time, but it's not specific to whether it's locked on or not. We've, we've had plenty of situations when the shark was coming at speed and within half a meter to a meter, turn around. And wow. even wild sharks are obviously massive. You, they're much more um, maneuverable and flexible than people think. Yeah. And they can really turn on itself within half a meter wow. if they decide to do so. And, and again, these, some of these electric deterrents can achieve that. And I've seen it when the shark was coming at speed, half a meter to a meter away, just turn, just turn away. Um, wow. So, so it's, again, not for proof, but it does work. The other interesting part, though, is that we tested different types of electric deterrents. And not all of these deter electric deterrents were equal. Um, there were differences between, uh, between the electric fields being produced, mm -hmm. and that resulted in differences in the ability to stop shark bites as well. So oh, okay. again, I think that people have to, to be aware that not all deterrents overall works. The best one scientifically tested so far, we don't know what's gonna happen in the future, but so far is the electric deterrent, mm. but not all of them are the same. And the characteristic of the field can influence how well it works. Um, as well as the, the position of the electrodes. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier, where that the, the range of these electric deterrents can be quite small. So if the electrodes are kind of behind you, for example, you know, what's behind you might be protected, but right. not the middle or, or what's in front of you. Right, so if it's hanging off your ankle or at the tail of your surfboard or something. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And that's why some of these um, deterrents have now kind of reconfigured the electrodes to be more um, around the whole body mm. rather than being streaming behind the mm. body. Mm. Wow. And I saw in a story that you're working on um, shark-proof wetsuit or something? Yeah, it's another thing that we tested in terms of, um, of shark deterrence. So I always describe shark bite mitigations and in a hierarchical kind of three-level um, um, kind of approach where the first thing that you want to try to do is to reduce the overlap between people and the sharks. Right. So, you know, basically make sure that the sharks and the people are not in the same area. And that can be done through, um, I guess, you know, kind of enclosing people away, like in people swimming in an enclosure. It can also be done through culling. I'm not saying culling is bad or good, but if you do cull sharks, that's reducing the number of sharks, that's reducing the likelihood of having that overlap between people as well. Mm. Obviously, there's some conservation questions with that, but it is possible to reduce overlap by culling as well. Um, but obviously, at the moment, there's no, again, foolproof way to avoid that overlap unless people either stay out of the water or slip, swim in an enclosure. Yeah. All the other ways to try to reduce that overlap can still result in, in sharks and people encountering uh, yeah, themselves yeah. sometimes. So if that first, I guess, protection level doesn't work, the next step is to reduce the chance of being bitten. So you can't avoid sharks and human encountering themselves. Um, you can try to reduce the likelihood of that shark biting the person. And that's where the, the shark deterrent, the electric shark deterrent, for example, can work quite well and reduce that likelihood of being bitten. Yeah. But as I've mentioned, it's only 60% uh, kind of foolproof in a way. So when a bite still does occur, the next step is to try to reduce the injuries that comes from a bite. And that's where this, this new type of, of neoprene or fiber uh, comes in handy. We've tested um, two different um, types of, of a new fiber incorporated into a neoprene uh, to look at whether that, that 
that new fiber could reduce injuries uh, when people get bitten. Mm. And we, we did some lab testing and also field testing, comparing normal neoprene to that new neoprene with the fiber. And so that with the, that new fiber, that new neoprene, had the, the holes being made on the material were, were much smaller mm. and the cuts being made were, were much smaller as well. Wow. So um, obviously, it, it, by the looks of it, it can actually reduce the, the injuries and obviously also hopefully reduce um, blood loss. Yeah. And you know, whilst we're obviously cognizant that it's not going to reduce bone breakages or, or internal injuries, um, most of the fatalities from shark bite comes from shock or, or, or the blood, blood loss, loss as yeah. well. Um, obviously, so if we can reduce blood loss, that would you know increase the likelihood of survival, yep. in, decrease the severity of the injuries, and also provide more time for emergency um, uh, units and responses to attend to the victim, uh, yeah. uh, you know, as well. So this again, not proof, but it can also we're, reduce injuries. So yeah. if you combine all these three levels, we're on the way there, man. Aren't it's, we? It's we're getting, getting better. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. getting better. I saw another story yesterday of um, some paramedics in England testing a jetpack. And basically getting to some victim in like Mm. 90 seconds instead of 25 minutes. And so combining stuff like that with some sort of mitigation style wetsuit Mm. and then, I don't know, whatever else on the first level of trying to reduce the encounters. It makes me so excited because I can't think of it like the amount of times where I've seen good waves by myself mm-hmm. and just gone like, oh, I feel dodgy about this. Yeah. I'm not going out. Yeah. And that would be awesome. I mean, especially here in, in South Australia, yeah. like we obviously it's, it's, it's cold and people always call it sharky. Um, if you walk up to a spot and there's actually nobody out there, you always wonder if it's because somebody's seen a shark in the previous couple of days or, right. or, or, you know, even if none has been sighted, if a shark does turn up, you, you know, you're the only person that could be interested in um, yeah, yeah. so yeah it's, it's, it is always on the back of your mind it has been in South Australia for a long time and I, I think it's increasingly uh, on the back of the mind of people up in northern New South Wales that's the thing well. it's like compared to the rugged cliffs of the Great Australian Bite and sort of inky kind of water yeah. and it's beautiful and clean and everything but it seems ominous compared to bright sunshine yeah. middle of the day turquoise crystal water and it just seems like there's no circumstantial um, safety mm. safe situation yeah, and that's again one of the issues, and is the temptation to overgeneralize um, some some of the the possible explanation for shark bites. Mm. And obviously, a lot of people think that shark bites are always mistaken identity, um, and would expect shark bites to occur in murky waters and uh, at uh, dawn and dusk, etc. And yes, I mean that that's possible, and I'm sure there would be cases of mistaken identity. But you know, shark bites can also occur in the middle of the day in very clear water on something, on a person that does not look like a seal. Mm. Um, so I think the problem is when you overgeneralize, it, it doesn't allow the public to, to, to make that informed decision to really understand what is going on. And then they, they, they become surprised when shark bites occurs in a, in a slightly different situation. Yeah, which is um, so unhelpful for the broader scope of investigation. Yeah, yeah that level of emotional trauma. So I've read about in my internet trawling, mm. um, I've read about two things that I really specifically wanted to ask you about sure. as far as, I guess, um, that first tier that you're talking about mm. of reducing the encounters. Yeah. I've heard that um, the noise of orca whales frightens off great white sharks. There's been some studies on that and it's been something that's been, um, well, there's a bit of theory behind it in terms that in some places when some killer whales have appeared, the, the white shark, well, the aggregation of white sharks 
has, has become empty. So mm. the where wild sharks there, killer whales appeared, the wild sharks left. Um, and has been seen in a couple of places. However, again, it is a bit, and people have basically taken that to, well, when the killer whales arrive, the wild sharks see the killer whales, they, they, they kind of leave. Um, that's, it's again, it's a slightly oversimplification because there's been plenty of cases at some of these aggregation when wild sharks and killer whales were sighted and the wild sharks did not leave. Okay. Um, it's also assuming that um, the killer whales are, are making a sound when they're hunting wild sharks. And again, from evolutionary perspective, you might think that killer whales might try to be silent to try to be more effective at mm. catching wild sharks as well. It's possible too. Um, so, I mean, that's a theory behind it. Um, it's been tested a few times and um, based on, on the, the, some studies being done in, in South Africa, we, we could not detect any deterrent properties of killer whale sound on wild sharks. So okay. We did go in South Africa as part of a team from the University of Western Australia uh, doing this project. Uh, we, we basically had a, a bit of burley uh, and a canister full of bait in the water. We had some killer whale sound, no sound and random sound and there was no differences in the proportion of bait or canisters being bitten, okay. regardless of the sounds okay. being there. So it certainly did not stop the wild sharks coming close, really close, um, and taking that canister or the bait, even though there was lots of um, killer whale sound uh, around. So yeah, there's right. a tiny bit of theory, but it's not, yeah, e even the theory does not suggest automatically that it would work. And when we tested it, we showed that it didn't work. It definitely didn't, okay. I was getting really excited about that as a neat yeah. and tidy thing of just like submerging some speaker at popular surf yeah. breaks or. Well, there's been a lot of thought. I mean, the best one I've had is somebody um, contacted me and proposed that we should just use a big inflatable killer whale um, mm. in, in the surf break and, and use that and that would repel sharks. Um, and so, so visually, would it be different? Like would they, has I mean, that been tested about whether they look, I guess, how on earth would you measure that? You, you can't just drag a killer whale along the it, next time. It's one of these, I mean, it. you could always test it, but it's one of these things where I think habituation would, would be an issue, even if it did work, I'm not saying that it would, but even if it did, very quickly the shark will, will learn by seeing that this killer whale is not doing anything, that it's no longer an issue and then, and then yeah, no longer okay. be affected by it as well. Yeah, gotcha. um, so that, that's another issue. So okay. yeah, it's a good idea in theory and, and some of, it's always good to investigate them because you never know. And I think that there's always, there's a lot of crazy ideas out there, mm. but it sometimes takes a crazy idea to get a good one. Yeah. Um, so I'm always open to hear it, but yeah, the, the oversimplification is typically what doesn't make it work basically. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, I'll try my second one with okay. you then. Um, I feel really smart for having learned the word semiochemical mm -hmm. and necromones yes. as like pu these like putrefaction things that come mm -hmm. out of a shark carcass. Yeah, so that's another interesting one. There's been some testing being done. Uh, some of it was um, looked like it, it, it might have potential. Um, again, there hasn't really been enough scientific testing to see whether that's um, consistent across all species. Um, when it was initially tested, it wasn't so much on, on some of the potentially dangerous sharks. It was more on the more readily available species to do the testing on, like reef sharks, for mm. example. Um, there's also some questions about, do you need to slightly change the, the necromones according to the species that you're targeting as well? Um, the idea of the necromones also is linked in a way to the killer whale, the things that you were saying, because mm. it's not just the sound. Some people believe that when the sharks did disappear is because the killer whale had 
um, uh, predated on a shark, left the carcass at the site, and it's not the noise of the killer whale, it's the, the, the scent of the, the leftover carcass or necromones that drove the, the sharks away. Yeah. So even in the context of a killer whale, that, that necromones comes in as a potential way to deter sharks. Mm. Um, I've had some colleagues that, that did do some testing recently. Uh, it's not what published or peer-reviewed yet, but it, based on that, that testing, it, it suggested that it's, uh, it's, again, it's not, well, they didn't find any, any, any significant difference okay. in, in their context, which again, wasn't related to shark bites specifically. It was more related to fisheries and try to reduce bycatch. Uh, from uh, on sharks, but for those species it didn't work. So there's some early studies that suggest it can work. Some of the more recent studies suggest that it doesn't work all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be one of those where it's got potential, I think, um, but it's going to be more complex than any necromones anywhere on yeah. any species. Yeah. And the other major issue with, with the necromones is that um, how do you make sure that the scent is continuous and, and long-term as well? Yeah. Obviously with the water uh, dilution, it's very quickly. So yeah. you have to find a way to, to have that smell ongoing and continuous for a long period of time and to make sure that it's actually work uh, across the place. But then you again have the same issue of habituation. Mm. You know, after it, let's say it works really well, after six months of the same smell coming from the same place and no sort of no no detrimental effect detrimental effect right the sharks might learn or become habituated to that smell oh yeah don't and, worry about it and it's, no it's longer fine. being repelled by yeah, it yeah gotcha well. okay and that would only happen though if the shark is is frequently exposed to it yeah and that's again something where resident shark versus migratory sharks would be very very different because as a sharks that migrate around they're less likely to become habituated to any term devices. Mm. The resident uh, more uh, sharks that have smaller home ranges, for example, they're the one where some of these mitigation measures might, we don't know, but might become less effective through time if they get exposed to it very often. Yeah, yeah. So there are, because there are other culprit species of shark bites, it's not just great white sharks, right? Like it's bull sharks. Well, it, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, Typically, the, the, the three species that people refer to as being responsible for the most shark bites are white sharks, tiger sharks, bull sharks. Okay. But at the same time, it's really interesting how that differs between location and that the same species can be very safely dived with in some areas and be responsible for the most bites in others. Mm. So for example, if you look at uh, tiger sharks, they're the that's the species most responsible for shark bites in, in Hawaii, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but there's plenty of wildlife tourism with tiger sharks. When with people dive with every day, nothing happens. Um, and that's not just because there's bait or chum in the water. There's, there are some of these wildlife tourism without any bait and burly, mm. and people swim safely with tiger sharks. You look at bull sharks, same story. If you look at some places in South Africa, they're, they're responsible for a lot of attacks. If you look at some places, um, uh, potentially in Queensland and, and also maybe in, in northern New South Wales, they can also be responsible for some of the bites. But again, there's plenty of, of, of wildlife tourism with bull sharks mm. uh, where people don't, don't get bitten as well. So why is that? Is that just because they're, they're well-fed in some areas and not in other areas? I think it's, it's not a question of well-fed. I think it's more a question of the behavioral state that these individuals are in. And that's why, again, you know, when you overgeneralize tiger sharks are bad, bull sharks are bad, 
okay, in some places they can bite, but it's, it's not, you cannot generalize as much as that. And I think in some places they, they're just not in that behavioral state of that is more prone to leading to a bite. Mm. And I guess that's what brings the, the very interesting question in what motivates sharks to bite in humans. Because obviously, more often than not, the shark will be in the same area and will not result in any negative interaction. Mm. But every now and then, for whatever reason, the shark will end up biting a person. If we can understand what is that whatever reason, we can try to reduce the likelihood of that reason taking place. Yeah. Um, but that's very difficult to, to, to know, um, and we haven't been able to fully understand what makes a shark decide to bite or not bite. Um, so does that include um, sharks biting boats and propellers and that sort of thing? That's slightly different, and I know a lot of people would link that to cage diving, but again, I don't think that's the case. I think it's more that sharks are very sensitive to, to or they're very curious by nature. Like yeah. I've seen sharks biting seaweed a lot. Really? Um, and that's not a learned behavior or anything like that. That's, you know, evolutionary, they're just a lot of these species are pelagic species like white sharks uh, to some extent. And they need to be curious to not miss out on a to potential prey. prey. Exactly. Right, so if you're not going to be that curiosity, you're going to miss out. So yes, they bite seaweed. Yes, they sometimes buy props, etc. The other thing is as they are very close to the boat because they're curious and come and check it out, the, um, the anodes in the, on the engine is typically uh, produces a bit of a very minute, small current. And is that like um, upsetting their noses and stuff? Not upsetting, but just, um, I guess, interesting them in a way right. that they're, they, they're obviously sensing that something is there and they go and investigate because of their curiosity again. And they can only investigate one way, which that's is right. with their mouth. Yeah, but again, yeah. that's not something that's gonna be attracting them from, from 20 meters away or, or even 10 meters away. I think it's the boat in general will be a curious object that they'll think, oh, what's this? Yeah. But once they close, then they mind up being more interested in the engine because of that electric field. Yes, so that, because that sense is not something they use from far away. It's, it's, it's only it, because that electric field dissipates very, very quickly okay. in the water. And that's one of the main issues with the electric repellent, which is why it's not a small thing. range, because okay, it, okay. it just dissipates so quickly. Yeah. So again, it's only gonna be of interest to the sharks when it's already very, very close right, to, yeah. to the boat. Right. The pelagic thing is, um, is another thing I wanted to ask you about, because as, a, as the armchair scientist I am, it like, seems like such an obvious causal relationship that there are so many fewer fish in the ocean now and, and if they're roaming around and there's not the usual mm. food sources, combining that with something like an increasing whale population or humpback population on the East Coast, I would sort of um, link those things together. Is that, is that valid at all? Or? It's, it's an interesting one. And again, it's something that's being brought up a lot. And the standard response from the scientists would be correlation does not equal, equates to um, causation. causation. I've heard that one. Yeah. Um, You'd think I would have learned that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So to remind people of that. And, and yes, I mean, the, the, there's, there's an increase of, of humpback whale population, which I guess that's what you're trying to achieve when you protect it. Um, and whilst you might be finding um, some species of sharks at the same time as some whales, that doesn't mean that the sharks are following the whales. Yeah. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, between if there are correlation between fish stocks and sharks, um, again, it doesn't mean that one is causing change in behavior in the other one. Okay. Um, in case of fish, with fish stock, the other thing is that, again, I think people are overgeneralizing that the fish stocks are going down. 
Yes, there are really? some. Well, there are some issues with um, with some species and some fish stocks. Um, but if you look at what Australia is doing compared to other parts of the world, a lot of Australian fisheries are actually well managed in a way that the, 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 the stocks are, are being caught sustainably um, and the population is actually not going down either. So again, it's true that some fish stocks have been depleted, um, but it's not as, I don't think we can go as broad as broadly as saying, you know, there's been an over-reduction of fish stocks and that's what's causing the sharks to come in close to shore. Mm. Um, that's, that's a complete oversimplification. Okay. And what we're seeing is that what's more likely to be influencing shark behavior, it's not an increase or decrease of, of fish stocks broadly, is more a question of how the fish are, whatever is left, whether it's a lot or, or a few, how these are distributed like uh, towards around the coast. And that's not gonna be a matter of size of fish stocks, but more of environmental conditions that makes the, the, the fish moving to one area or another. Mm. So regardless of what the population is doing, the, the, the temperature, the, the nutrients in the water, that will affect how that stock is distributed. Yeah. Um, and you know, in some parts, some times of the year, these fish might be closer to shore, and that's why obviously like predators that comes to feed on these fish that also will be coming close to shore. Yeah. Okay. If you look at some of the, the interesting work that's been done in New South Wales using tagging, um, I've looked at a, a graph recently that actually shows that the time of the year when you're most likely to get white shark around northern New South Wales is in September, August, or August, September. Really? And that's when, you know, obviously there's been a few events recently, yeah. uh, very unfortunate. But again, that's if, the, the, so going back to that likelihood of, of overlap, in terms of likelihood of, likelihood of overlap, that August, September, maybe a bit of October as well, is when you, you're most likely to encounter a shark, or a white shark, uh, around a northern New South Wales uh, area. Wow, that's um, a nugget of information. So, and the reason for why these sharks are going there at that time of the year, um, we're not entirely sure, but it's likely driven by, by, by well, any movement is typically driven by either food, um, suitable habitat or mating. Some of these sharks that are being sighted and, and being tagged uh, are still immature, so it wouldn't be mating. So it would be suitable habitat, which is also linked to environmental conditions, or food. And in terms of the preys of a lot of these sharks, the distribution of these preys is also related to environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. So that, go, that goes back down to at certain time of the year, you would, in certain conditions, you will expect more or the other way around less sharks as well that because yeah right so that was one in, that was a use reminded me of another one of the most mm. compelling things that i read online i'm saying like useless and unhelpful <laughs> with this stuff because i don't know where it came from but i read a thing that felt really sounded really um legitimate about how stupid is that to say sounded legitimate <laughs> estuarine environments mm. after a lot of rainfall at specific tides and the sharks learning that um fish will that will go into the estuary to feed will be flushed out um, before the tide drops mm -hmm. and so they know to wait at those estuarine openings and then shepherd them up a longshore bar up to the northern end of a big beach something like that it's not impossible um, I don't know exactly you know where that would happen etc but it's I guess if you think about general ecology you know fish will move according to to the tides um, and there if there is more fish at a certain 
tidal stage, you'd expect the sharks to be more prevalent there as well. Yeah. Again, it's hard to generalize you I think, know, across everything. Yeah, of course. But it, it's it is true that you know if there is big big rains. And that the the and estuary kind of um, is the, the the flow increases, and that there's more nutrients, more 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 things in the water, and potentially that that attracts a lot of. See, if there's more nutrients, more things in the water, that could attract a few more fish. That would then also attract a few more sharks as well. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of um, it's a logical link, uh, which I think can take place. But again, you know, are we talking about? You know, ten sharks instead of one. Or are we talking about two sharks instead of one? Yeah. Um, the the increased risk is very hard to quantify um, accurately. Yeah. But it is true that if you've got a, a big flow out of a river, you you are likely to have maybe a bit more sharks than you would normally. So after big rainfall, for example, is like. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> just using a bit of logic. Again, there's not a huge amount of strong data to strong specific data to show that white shark number increase at rivers during these big floods, mm-hmm. um, but there's a lot of anecdotal information that would suggest it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, well, I don't want to take up, I'm sure you've got much more important things to do than talk to me, but one last thing sure. that I think would be really valuable mm-hmm. um, is in terms of um, stage three of your mm-hmm. shark mitigation mm-hmm. strategy of, of attending and reducing um, the actual s- severity of an incident, yep. What's the go-to for aside from having a tourniquet yep. and knowing how to use it? Mm-hmm. Is there is there behaviour that sharks and di- sharks surfers and divers mm-hmm. can do in the water, like a certain response that you should try and prepare yourself for? <laughs> it's interesting, and I've, I get that question asked every now and then. And typically, I say try anything. Try you know, it. It, it, if you're into the point where there, there's a shark um, showing interest in, in a person, um, uh, you know, I would try anything that comes to mind. Um, to 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 try to reduce the risk and, and move that shark away. Um, so you know, I guess if the shark is not showing too much interest but just swimming around you, uh, obviously the advice is to calmly go try to get out of the water. And the reason why people say calmly is because any kind of too much disturbance and splashing around can uh, cause a further interest from the shark. But when you get to the point of the shark already showing a lot of interest. It doesn't hurt to try to actually show the shark that that you will be fighting back mm. um, and not be an easy prey, mm. uh, for the lack of, of a better word. Um, so it, yeah, it's more a question of um, it. There will be lots of interaction when nothing happens, but if it gets to the point of of being in a, in a dire situation, try anything that comes to your head, and obviously try to get out of the water as quickly as possible. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Cool. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for the last fifty. How cool is that guy? What an absolute gangster. Because if you're like me, you think of the word professor and suddenly you're thinking of a bespectacled old man or woman in a lab coat. That voice you've just been listening to belongs to a young athletic guy who spends as much time in a wetsuit, it would seem, as he does in a lab coat. Um, And before I let you go, I want to just close on something that he said to me after we switched the microphone off, which was actually one of the biggest uh, nuggets that I took away from yesterday, which is about perceived risk of things like surfing and diving. And so thinking about a place like South Australia as a great white shark hotspot and surfers being out in the water afraid of sharks, but apparently not afraid of taking off on some heaving eight foot slab into two feet of water on a rock shelf. And the perceived risk of doing those things and the likelihood of an extreme injury is so much more inherent in the actual activity as opposed to the 
infinitesimally smaller chance of receiving an injury after an encounter with a fish. So I actually really appreciated thinking about that and that will change my headspace hopefully in the water of thinking, well, yeah, I could be sitting out here worrying about sharks or I could think more about trying to avoid getting chopped by one of my fins or getting run over or plunging headfirst into a reef and breaking my neck. There's much bigger things to worry about in the sea than sharks, but I guess they're just is it the fact there's teeth involved? Who cares? I'll think about that on my own time. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I hope you enjoyed that. Such a treat for me to get to have that conversation, and I hope that you've learned a thing or two about great white sharks. And I don't know if you're more afraid or less afraid, but either way, maybe you're more educated. So thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.